Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 63 through 70, which begin with Honey telling Bond to stay where he is and ends with Bond, Quarrel, and Honey submerged and breathing through hollow reeds as the guards and dogs close in. In between those moments, Honey proves herself to be tough and resourceful, schools Bond on the dangers of nature after evading a heavily armed boat of Dr. No's men and leads them to a hiding place to hide as the guards and the dogs come back, as they said they would. We'll be back with the dogs. (laughs) <laughs> so with us today is Kevin Wilmot, film professor from the University of Kansas and the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Black Klansman, as well as the co-writer with Spike Lee of Chirac and Five Bloods, which is on Netflix right now, and the director of CSA, Confederate States of America, Jay Hawker's Destination Planet Negro, and his newest film, The 24th, premiered via VOD on August the 21st. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Hey, good to be with you guys. So do you remember your first James Bond movie? Uh, very much so, man. My first James Bond movie was Thunderball. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it just it blew the top of my head off. <laughs> and uh, and I, I had a Thunderball lunch lunchbox, lunch bucket. And, man, I wish I had that sucker today, man. <laughs> yeah, it was my prized possession, man. I love that. I mean, you know, the, our whole neighborhood was obsessed with Thunderball. It was with James Bond. And and the older guys kind of hit me to the deal. And then I was I was lucky enough. I saw, I saw Doctor No, um, in the James Bondathon that they had. Remember that that poster that has all the James Bond, and they it was like a re-release. I saw I think it was four or five of them all together one, one set Sunday afternoon, man. Oh my God! You went in, you went in at like ten a.m. and you came out about eight or nine o'clock, man. I had never seen was Dr. No. And that's when I saw Dr. No. I remember seeing Dr. No on a double bill with From Russia with Love and then seeing uh, Thunderball and You Only Live Twice on a double bill, sort of trying to catch up with all of them as well. Because I was a little younger than you. So the first one I saw in the theater, I think, was was Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, for me, it's all about Sean Connery. I mean, Sean, for me, it's Sean Connery's, you know, James Bond. I like I like my, my man, my, our last guy. Yeah, he's good, Daniel Craig. Yeah, Daniel Craig. Yeah, he's he's probably the the second best one uh, for me. But Sean Connery was the he was the guy for us. Can you imagine Live and Let Die with Sean Connery though? Oh, not really. <laughs> Part of the pleasure of that is just watching Roger Moore just have everybody run circles around him. You know, <laughs> it's just that is such a bad film, and uh, <laughs> you know, I mean. You know, I saw that movie during the black exploitation days, of course, because it's, it's ultimately a black exploitation film. But it's it's the worst kind of black exploitation film because it's a racist black exploitation film. And you know, the I mean, you know, this is during the black exploitation era, and and all the racist cliches from all the old movies are are in that movie still. And and you get none of the none of the things that you know you expected from a black exploitation movie. You know, black people don't get the win. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not really cool in the movie. You know, they don't, they don't get a girl. I mean, you don't get anything from the film, you know. And, and uh, I, you know, I have my students, uh, I showed that in my black exploitation class, and some of my students have written about it, and then they really tear it apart. No, it's true. And it, and it kind of starts out with, the, you know, they're winning against James Bond because he's really terrible. He's, he's completely out of his element. And oh, then totally. every, and then everything turns, and suddenly they become, way worse criminals because they're pretty good criminals at the beginning. Right. Yes. And then, then yes. suddenly they, it turns into a farce and they start making fun of everybody. Uh, well, you know, and that was, that was the thing about the Roger Moore movies, that, that you know, the that, that campy quality that they took on. It just, that just, 
you know, when we were, you know, James Bond for us was was totally serious. I mean, it was totally serious. You know, I mean, the, the, those early films, I mean, you we bought totally into the spy thing. And the spy thing at that time was really big, too, because our man from Uncle was on TV and the Matt Helm movies. They, those were campy, but they were all part of that spy, you know, obsession that was going on in, in the mid to late 60s. You know, one of the things I didn't realize was that Goldfinger came out at the very beginning of the year and Thunderball actually came out, premiered at December of the same year. Both of those movies came out the, the same year, which is wow, wow. mind blowing if you think about that. Yeah. Like yeah, Connery you know, had to just go right from one to the next one without a breath, you know? <laughs> no wonder he got tired. <laughs> yeah. I caught uh, Goldfinger. Um, that was one. It, it wasn't. I didn't see that at the at the Bondathon. It wasn't. At least it wasn't showing where I where I saw it. And I caught that one much later, and and that's that's maybe one of the best ones. I mean, it's a really fine film. I, I that's so funny because that was the one that was hard for me to find too um, when they were re releasing everything. I mean, I had seen that. That was the first movie I ever saw. But I think that. Um, Something about they held Goldfinger back when they did that when they did those re-releases, and I don't yeah. know why. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean that, and you, and you know, in terms of just spy movie stuff, I think Russia with Love is is uh, is maybe the best one of those. I mean, you know, it 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 really. I mean, there's not nearly as much action in the film that you kind of expect. You know, that you got from movies that followed it. As term, in terms of just good kind of espionage, kind of spy adventure stuff, it's it's really quite good. That, that fight with uh, that fight they have in the train is is crazy great. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it really, truly is. Well, I wanted to talk about some of the choices made, like in these specific minutes uh, here that we're talking about. I wanted to ask you two what you thought about the walk and talk here. So we get this introduction of of Ursula Andress and Honey Rider. And a little back and forth with with Bond and uh, about the shells, and she pulls the knife on him, and it's very easily reassured by the way that his intentions are pure. I'm not sure she should trust him quite that much, but she does. And uh, they start this walk and talk, and I don't know. Maybe you guys could tell me what you think because to me, it's a really flat like introduction to these two characters. I'm not exactly sure what this walk and talk is about. It feels awkward. And I'm not sure what we're getting out of it. Is there something I'm missing about why they chose to have this uh, little bit in the movie? I, you know, I just think all of all of the information, you know, it, it's 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 so kind of far fetched in a way. Uh, that's why she has to believe in the dragon too. I mean, she's got such a, coming out of that water that's such a great introduction to her. And I think it, it, you know, and we just go, wow, it's downhill from there with her. Well, I think it's really hard when you bring a character in in the middle of a movie to get to know them enough that we're going to care about them or take them seriously, you know, as a as a real person. And so I think that I feel almost like you could turn the sound off for these seven minutes and probably another five or six after it and realize that really all this is about is trying to just get her close to James Bond and try to get us used to the fact that she's part of the story now, because yeah, there's not a lot that gets and they and to, you know to her defense they give her a couple of moments where she gets to school Bond on the animals or she gets to tell Bond where they can hide so she seems capable, but he also gets to snuggle up next to her behind the sand dunes when they're machine gunning them. So I don't know. It's sort of. Well, I feel like that off. could have happened. I it maybe it was a pacing choice. Maybe we've come right out of this fade out. We faded back in. We meet this woman. This this wonderfully iconic moment. And I don't know if it's a pacing thing, but to me, as I'm watching it, I'm thinking chop out the walk and talk. I would think once they've had this exchange about the shells, Bond would probably realize right then, oh, wait, do you have a boat? This is actually a very dangerous situation we're in. It takes him a little long. Uh, that's part of what's awkward to it about about it to me is that it takes him a little bit too long to figure out that maybe he needs to ask her about that boat. And, oh, well, maybe they, their radar picked it up. Maybe we need to start thinking about getting out of here or hiding. And um, a lot of this information. out of there. Yes, or that, anything. Really, what I'm saying is, let's speed up the pace. Let's make things a little bit more urgent. Because this walk and talk, I'm thinking, 
what are you doing? <laughs> like, I'm not getting anything new out of this. There's supposed to be this cute exchange about, oh, what are you laughing about my name, which is kind of dumb. And uh, then it's suddenly like a light bulb almost literally goes off above his head. And it makes him seem a little silly. And the whole thing seems a little, uh, I don't know, like they're forcing a, a, a meat cute on us or, or, or too specific of a meat cute. Like, it's fine that they just met on the beach and this is a dangerous situation. Let's get it going. And maybe if they, if you want to have a little bit more, like you said, Mitch, have the audience care about her, learn a little bit more about her. We could get that when they're dredging through the swamp later, you know. I don't know. I was just, as I was watching this a couple of times over, I thought, man, I definitely would have cut this right out of the movie, I think, speed yeah, it up I, a little bit. I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, when you said, Mitch, about, um, you know, she's introduced so late into the film. I remember as a kid, I mean, this is before I knew anything about screenwriting. Uh when I saw it as a kid, it, it kind of surprised me that she was introduced so late. Well, dead, dead center in the movie, basically. Yeah, it's, it's, it feels real late uh, because, I mean, literally, I mean, she's introduced and then they're, and they end up being captured by Dr. No and then they're, they're in the big, you know, the big yeah. climax. Thing. It just felt late even as a kid. And what I, I think that's, that's right. I think they're, they're having to work extra hard to make us care about her, kind of give us information about her and, at that point, you just aren't really interested in learning about somebody new. This first conversation that Bond and Honey have, where you know he's trying to talk her into leaving her shells, and she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to leave those those shells behind. And she said that one of them was worth fifty dollars, and that got me to thinking about, well, how much was fifty dollars worth in nineteen sixty two? And so I did, I looked it up, and it's it was like four hundred and twenty five dollars. I mean, that's so you start thinking about, OK, how far did the money go with the budget on this film? So if they had about a million dollars to make the film with, that's the equivalent to like eight and a half million dollars today. Still, that would be called a Hollywood super low budget movie in terms of Hollywood, obviously not independently. But yeah. then then you find out they had 50 days to shoot it in. They had 10 weeks. And it made me just think about like, I don't think there's a low budget movie, an eight and a half million dollar movie these days that would have. 50 days to shoot. Do you, Kevin? No, 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 not at all. Well, I think, too, you know, a big part of cost, you know, besides the big spectacle thing that they did is just actor cost and, and union cost. Yeah, they, the, 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 the time part of it just seems to be crushed. That's what they really, I, I yeah. assume on your movie, they were, your film, the 24th, you didn't have much time to make that film, did you? No, we, we had 18 days and, uh, and, you know, you had to, you know, I had to really employ a lot of my tricks to, to make it work. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, when, even when you, even when you, for that movie, for me was kind of a, a big budget movie for me, but it's, it's a, a nothing budget for most movies now. And yet it's expected to be judged against every other movie out there. Right. So your action scenes have got to be as, as good as a, as a big, big budget action movie, right? No, no doubt about it. And, and, uh, and that's the thing where, you know, we're, we're making low budget movies really kind of helps because it teaches you uh, how to cut corners and, and what you need and what you don't need. I mean, that's when you're, when, you know, it, it's all about time with low budget. I mean, the, you know, money is time and the clock is ticking and then the, the money clock is ticking and, You've just got to get a lot done in a short period of time. So you, so the big thing is to know what you need and what you don't need. And so you, I'm literally kind of editing the movie in my head as I'm shooting. Does that give you more freedom uh, in terms of sort of getting the version of the movie that you want made? Because they used to say that about John Ford that he wouldn't shoot any coverage, and so that they couldn't recut the movie. Yeah, I mean that's 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 one of the advantages of of the low budget is that, uh, you know when especially with action stuff is that. You know, there's just there's just not much you can do besides the way you 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 you, you know you shot it. Uh, even though they do try, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, uh, but the reality of it is, is that uh, especially with action sequences, if and that's the thing that you're usually going fast. And and anytime you know we were shooting at night a lot of times, and a lot of the action was at night. A big part of the action is at night, and that's always just one more strain on everything and so you've got a you're, you're shooting you know at, at four o'clock in the morning and you're trying to you know finish before sunrise and uh 
um, and you just kind of move really fast. And so that's that's really where I think that's really where you know when you when you have written a script and you kind of really know what you want and what you don't, what you need and what you don't need. I mean, that's that's really where that, that those elements really pay off. Well, these scenes that we're looking at today, apparently they they had basically three days to do everything that took place on the beach. And and that includes the what would be coming up with the dogs and the chasing and all that all that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, in that sense, I guess this was still a low budget movie. They didn't have much time to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny because even when you've got a, a decent budget and all that stuff, you know, certain sequences, uh, you know, they have they have their own unique amount of pressure, uh, depending on you know, what's been scheduled and a lot of time to schedule to shoot it and where you're shooting and how you're shooting and what what elements you're dealing with, you know, all of those things. And so. To get back to this minute, you know, I wanted to I wanted to talk for a second about this as as Quarrel kind of comes into the picture and comes running up and stops dead in his tracks to to look at Ursula Andrus and who could blame him. But um, <laughs> the guest, our last guest made the point that you watch Quarrel looking but you don't get his point of view that then the shot drops back and you've got Coral with back to camera and Bond positioned in between Coral and the girl. And I just wonder whether you read anything into that. Well, you know, in those days, you know, it just wasn't about Coral's point of view. I mean, it just, it just, it's it never about the black character's point of view. Unless the movie's really about, about, you know, race or it's about something that's conscious kind of choice that a uh, director is doing. So Coral is, is really there, I think. Uh, he's a, you know, he's a sidekick and uh, a disposable sidekick, which most James Bond sidekicks are disposable, whether they're male or female. Uh, and so I, I don't I don't think there's anything deep going on there. I mean, I, I, I could be wrong about that, but, but the way Coral is, the other choices that that, that define Coral's treatment in the film don't really, you know, really indicate that to me. So is the sidekick there is not only to be disposable, but I guess for some kind of comic relief? Yeah, I mean, you know, and you know, and and John Kitzmiller, I mean, he's, you know, really, you know, he really was a really great actor and 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 it played a lot of these type of roles. He was able to um you know, play some great, you know, get some movies where he was really the lead in them and things like that. Uh, but typically he was a supporting character in, I think, most movies. And uh, so in here, you know, this is not a not a bad role for him. Uh, probably the most negative part is the the superstitious part of it. You know, that's that's where they kind of where they kind of fall into the stereotype stuff. It's a, it's kind of a mixed you know, it's kind of a mixed stereotype, I think, in a way, you know, because, you know, clearly voodoo and and all of that stuff is a part of Haiti and Caribbean type culture and all of that stuff. It, you know, it reflects it so negatively in terms of when you see James Bond, the modern kind of intelligent hero, uh, it just makes Quarrel look so dumb. Kevin, I was going to ask, we talked to, in the last episode as well with our previous guest, about the fact that it kind of seems like Quarrel's characterization isn't necessarily consistent through this film. Do you get the sense that once once it's time to go on this mission to Crab Key, when they meet with uh, Felix at the boat to head over, that suddenly there's this shift in his character as well? Because we talk about the sidekick, this uh, this comic relief kind of character, and then the superstition. We don't really get any of that earlier. He actually seems like a streetwise kind of... Uh, capable character earlier in the film, the guy that knows what's going on uh, in Jamaica. Now suddenly he's he seems to be uh, deferring to Bond on all decisions and not uh, not really capable of uh, of intelligent thought almost. Stephen, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, no, I think I think that's I think that's the thing that makes it stand out. I think that's the thing that makes that choice stand out because you know he doesn't come off that way in the beginning. I mean, like I say, he comes up. You know, city-wise, street-wise, kind of a you know, an urban, a really kind of an urban character, and uh, and people that would believe in something like that, those would be country folks, kind of uneducated people, uh, people that you know are still grounded in the superstitions of of, of, you know, of the old ways, and uh, and he doesn't come 
that way at all. I mean, he's, you know, he, he's basically, I mean, he's he for James Bond's people, you know? And so that, in, I mean, that in itself, um, you know, there's another character in um, Thunderball who is played by another black character actor. I cannot think of his name right um, he just uh, passed away, right? Just yeah, he passed away a, few, a couple of years oh, right. ago. No, just a couple of weeks no, ago. No, it was just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I can't think Is of his name right? either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a character actor in a lot of British films. Um, and and he's and he's like quarrels except modernized. I mean, given the better treatment in, in Thunderball. And, you know, he's, he's the, clearly a guy that works for MI6 or whatever and um, and is sophisticated, and he's the guy that does the electronics and stuff. And uh, and and Quarles really should have been that guy, you know. It's clearly to me the choice of the voodoo stuff was to to find a way to to, to kill him in the film, to kill the character. And that actor's name was Earl Cameron. Yeah. Yes, Earl Cameron. Yes, Earl Cameron. Yes, yes. And yeah, and he just passed away. He was like a hundred and he was a hundred and something. Yeah, he's yeah. been around. He was around a long time. And um, yeah, I, you know, I, I just th- I just think that it was kind of a, a bad screenwriting choice in terms of of you know they wanted to it, they you know they wanted to do the the monster uh, flamethrower you know thing and and they just kind of had to justify it in some way and so they they really went hard to i think they had to go the long way around the barn to justify quarrels being in the way well at least honey believes in the dragon too so at least we get a <laughs> yes get that, a that does help a little bit that, <laughs> that does helps help a little, little bit. bit not a lot but it helps a not lot. not a lot but a, a little <laughs> bit a little bit and she would know she's seen scorpions commit suicide for heat strike like all of the things that she describes that give, apparently gives her credence, uh, gives her credibility in knowing about dragons. I've never quite understood that that exchange, but that's like in Star Trek. Like you say two, you say two things that we know are real, and then you add a third thing. Right. So you like like sharks, like tarantulas, or the five-headed octopus from Deneb Four. Right. And it just adds credence to the whole thing. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's interesting because I, in 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 a, in a way, um, both uh, Honey and Quarles, you know, have the same kind of function in the film. I mean, you know, they they're there to serve James Bond. Obviously, uh, Honey is 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 a Mamaluchi, and Quarles is just you know a disposable sidekick and. Uh, but neither one of them have to be very smart. Both of them can kind of be—I wouldn't say stupid, but but you know, not not as sharp as Bond. It's true. It's arguably this is this is the sharpest Honey gets because at least she knows where they can hide, and she seems to know her way around this place. And I'm not sure what James Bond's plan was once they started shooting at him from the boat. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I never could figure out whether they're going to try to sneak into Doctor No's uh, base or what, or just wait around until they get captured. I'm not sure. Well, haven't they learned enough? I mean, I don't know. You're right. This is another one of those places where I'm not 100 percent sure what they're doing there. But if a gunboat comes along and shoots at you, don't you know that it's probably worth investigating? Uh, the island on a larger scale, maybe? I don't know. Like, uh, I kind of wonder why Bond isn't like, well, that's enough. We can call in the cavalry now. Uh, but I, I don't know. You're right. I don't know what he's got. And I just I just uh, was listening to an oral history of James Bond where they, they talk specifically about how they, they kind of were mindful of the fact that it had these problems. And they really hoped. The, the quote that I heard was, um, you hope that on the way home, the husband says, hey, what about that part of the movie? And the wife goes, hey, you enjoyed it. Shut up. That was the, the literal <laughs> quote. And uh, and I think that they really relied on that a lot in this movie. I've heard it referred to as the either the parking lot factor or the icebox factor, that when you get home and you reach into the icebox to get something, get a beer or whatever, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, what about that? So if you Is don't think w- about it until yeah. you get home, you're good. Oh, yeah, you know, you know, no doubt. And I don't, I don't think back then especially that they were thinking that hard about everything having to add up. I think people, the magic of movies still carry the day to a large degree, especially movies like this that are, you know, are – adventure almost sci-fi movies really in some kind of you know 
subgenre kind of way. Uh, I mean, nobody, I don't think, it, it, it would have only been the, the real critics that would have been asking you questions about it. Well, and Bond is a man, he's a man of action, right? And we trust that he's going to get the job done. And then when you say, well, what's the job? He's like, I don't know, he'll get it done, though. Like, <laughs> I, I believe whatever it is, he's going to get it done. And I think, I mean, there's there's something to be said about it. I'm, I enjoy them on that level. Uh, but we're talking about this movie in, in finer detail. So we're really exposing even more uh, issues with the plot of this movie than I uh, even originally thought doing it this way. But at the same time, I don't care when I'm watching the movie. I'm perfectly well, willing to give into it. That, that's right. I mean, in, in, that, in that sense, it's, uh, I mean, Bond movies have always worked. In, at the core, they're kind of exploitation films. I mean, they're, they're a super dude, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a super hyped up uh, villainous world. And, and he's got cool ass gadgets and, uh, and he's great with the ladies. And I mean, it's, it's every, it's, it's the total male fantasy on every level. And, 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 you know, that's why we just didn't question anything because it was just so fun to watch as a dude. I don't know how women <laughs> women women thought about it, but for for the for the fellas, it was it was great, you know. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kind of glad that it's not Quarrel who asks, "What are we going to do with her?" I think it's great that Bond Bond asks the dumb question. You know, it's like, "Gee, what are we going to do with her now?" And yes. So it's, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and 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 that and that probably kind of you know, for a black character that time to say something like that about something. That about somebody looks like Ursula. I mean, that would have been, you know, kind of too much, probably. Well, you do hear all these stories about how how absolutely paranoid studios in the early '60s were about how's the Southern audience going to respond to this movie. That's right. That's right. And and that's and that's probably one of the reasons why Quarles has to die, because you know, like in some of the other James Bond movies, the the sidekick gets to run off and go tell the, you know, the, the double O people that Bond's in trouble and, and need to bring the cavalry, you know, instead he's got to be knocked off because he, I mean, you just don't want this guy hanging around this beautiful white woman. Uh, Not that he's a threat of any, but he just, he's just ultimately in the way. And I think that's definitely what was being read into just that idea of always positioning Bond in between Quarrel and the girl. I mean, yes, she's destined to be Bond's girlfriend, but there does seem to be something, something else maybe going on, just on a very subtle level. Yes, yes, indeed. You know, I, I want to mention, you know, John John Kitzmiller, the guy that plays Quarles. I mean, he uh, he was a big star in in Europe, and he made a lot of Italian films. He was a he was a soldier in World War II, and and basically stayed in Italy when when the war was over. And uh, Carlo Ponti and those guys. And and uh, at, a, at a poker game, and started putting him in movies, and he was in like about over fifty movies, I think, fifty Italian European films, and he's the first black actor to be the win best actor at uh, the Cannes Film Festival for a movie called uh, Valley of Peace, which is a Slovenian film, and uh, uh, but the one I saw, it was recently, it was a couple years ago, they had it on Turner Classic Movies, it's a Italian film without pity that is uh, written by. Federico Fellini, and man, that's a that's a really great film. And he he really often he often played soldiers. He often played black you know the black the black soldier that's in Italy and there. And a lot of black soldiers were in Italy, and and kind of had a huge effect with the Italian culture. I mean, all those a lot of those you know Italian neorealistic films have have him in them or or references to black characters. And so anyway, you know. He had a he had a really good career. I, I, his last film was is Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I actually saw that movie as a kid in 1969. And it's a, it's not an American film. It was like an a, I don't know if it was if it, it was a foreign film that that's the, of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and he's Uncle Tom in the film. And I'd for, I'd forgotten about this film. And I watched it as when I saw it as a kid. It was I probably would have been I think 11 when I saw it. And it was it was strange and, and weird and uh, but I re- I remember kind of enjoying it. I mean I you know I didn't know much about what Uncle Tom was all about and that film kind of taught me about the Uncle Tom story. 
So you think it would have been a foreign film, so like everybody had maybe been dubbed or something? Yeah, you know, Herbert Long, you remember the guy? Yeah, from, sure. He, he, was, he was Simon Legree. He was Simon Legree. Oh, wow. So maybe it was an English film. It might have been an English film or something, yeah. I'm not sure what country did it, but I remember as a kid saying, I, this looks a little weird. Uh, uh, but, you know, you know, Quar I mean, uh, Kitzmiller, you know, he's speaking in English, but the other people might have been dubbed or, or something. I, I've never been able to see the, yeah, I've never been able to see the film again. I don't know if it's available or not, but I'd for, actually forgotten about it until I just noticed it on his IMDb page. Well, Kevin, I know you teach um, a class on the war film at KU, and I, I, I keep thinking about this sequence of the movie being kind of like it reminds me of of like 60s war movies, you know, with them running from these guys and hiding under the water with the reeds, which is not the most original idea in the world. <laughs> it got me to thinking about 60s war movies and just I, I thought, well, what? So, OK, what was happening in 1962? So I went and did just, you know, the basic Internet check. And I just I want to share this because I just think it's really interesting if we think about like where were movies of this genre I didn't. There's no comedies or musicals on here, except for the fact that Elvis had both King Galahad and Girls, Girls, Girls out in '62. But other than Elvis, um, the movies that were coming out in '62 were Cape Fear, Experiment in Terror, Hell Is for Heroes, Hatari, How the West Was Won, Lonely or the Brave, Lawrence of Arabia, Lolita, The Longest Day, Manchurian Candidate, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Merrill's Marauders, uh, Mutiny, <laughs> Mutiny wow. on the Bounty, Sergeants Three. Uh, 300 Spartans um, and I'll, whatever happened to Baby Jane as well. But so that's those are the American movies. And what's really crazy is then the international films that were coming out at the same time. So Autumn Afternoon from Japan, Boccaccio 70, Cleo from 5 to 7, Le Dulos, Eclipse, Electra, Exterminating Angel, Harakiri, Le Jete, Jules and Jim, Knife in the Water, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, Mama Roma, Mondo Kane, My Life to Live, Fedra, Salvatore Giuliano, and Tale of Zadowichi. Can you, can you imagine, like just five years ago even, that kind of variety of films being made? Yeah, and then that, 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 those two lists, too, that really kind of indicates the difference between American film and, and, and European film. I mean, oh, yeah, definitely. You, know, you, you, <laughs> you mean you've got the, the French New Wave is, is about to kick in and, and, you know, people are just, Europeans just have such a different sensibility about things. And, and, uh, and you've got a, a few kind of semi-bright spots in American film there, but as a whole, it's pretty traditional stuff. And even in terms of race, like we're we're really at still at this point where I mean we've had we've had a few things in the fifties, right? I and mean, we've had yeah. No Way Out and Odds Against Tomorrow. World of Flesh and the Devil was fifty nine. Yes. Uh, and then on either side of Doctor No are is Raising in the Sun and Lilies of the Field. Defiant Ones was fifty eight. So it does make me wonder, like you know, this is just not yet on everybody's minds in terms of of how much attention we're gonna pay to somebody a character like Quarrel. No, no doubt about it. And I think that's that's kind of one of the things that informs the film too. I mean the the three blind mice too um another it's not it's not really that's not really as much a racist trope as it is just you know one of the things that kind of strikes you when you see these these films from this period and, and connecting them to today is the whole thing of Black Lives Matter. The thing about these movies is that the black characters almost always get killed, and and it's not until the seventies, even when even when they're sympathetic characters like Quarles. I mean, Quarles, you know, you're supposed to like Quarles, and I think you eventually do like Quarles. He's a little weird in the beginning, but he, he you know, he, he grows on you, and you and you know, he's a, an ally, and uh, and and that that part of it doesn't really change until black exploitation. And exploitation is the first thing that kind of, you know, acknowledges that we, we never lived to the, to the end of the film. And as a kid, uh, you know, when I saw, when I saw Dr. No, it bothered me when Coral was uh, because I saw, I saw that film late and I was, I, and I was used to, I was kind of conscious of and used to because a few black films had come out where, you know, we got to be the heroes and, and, 
and you just said to yourself, I don't like being treated that way. And, and, and I tell you that, that element of things has always kind of stayed with me. In fact, in the five bloods, uh, there was in the rewrite we had, there was a character that was a Vietnamese character that was treated a little bit like quarrels. And I, and I made sure that, that he survived and is successful in the end, because when you watch a film, you see yourself in the movie. And if you're, if you're Vietnamese, you see yourself in the Vietnamese characters. If you're black, you see yourself in the black characters. If you're a woman, you, you probably see yourself in the, in the female characters. And you can't, you can't just make choices based on politics, but you certainly want to avoid super big stereotype holes to, when, you, when you can you know, avoid falling in. And after a hundred years of cinema, why not sort of <laughs> rethink this? You know, you know, for no other reason than to give movies some variety that that doesn't exist any at this point. You know? Well, I, I think I think audiences like that. I think audiences are tired of. I mean, it because for one thing, I mean, you know how you you're watching a horror film and you and you go, this guy's getting ready to get his head cut off, you know. And when you're ahead of the movie like that, it just takes all the the real respect of the movie away. And what's great when you kind of you have characters that look like they're going to be targeted and then you don't target them, you work a little harder and give them a choice in the film that makes them, um, you know, that breaks that whole stereotype we're talking about. It's, I think the audiences love that. It's pretty interesting when you realize it took the James Bond movies almost all the way up to Daniel Craig's movies for there to be persons of color with any real agency in these movies. I mean, I suppose, I guess, Halle Berry showing up in, in the last Pierce Brosnan movie. Uh, but yeah, uh, there was the there was the one the, 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 that sidebar James Bond movie, you know, uh, Never Say Never Again. Oh, yeah, of course. Bernie Casey played. Felix. And Bernie Casey's in that. And he plays that that FBI character that. Yeah, Jack Lord plays in Dr. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that was always refreshing. A fresh choice. Uh, and, and, you know, Sean Connery, for black folks, Sean Connery was always considered, like, um, about as cool as a black dude. And, uh, and that's a high compliment coming from street guys. I mean, the, you know, black people, black guys specifically, especially street guys, when they would talk about these, they all talked about James Bond's walk. James Bond has a Sean Connery has a really cool ass walk, and and it's I think his his confidence and his cool really kind of uh, he's I would argue he's probably the coolest white man of all time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Kevin, we talk about sometimes how how James Bond became this folk legend in Jamaica and how he was. Um, Often used in in Jamaican music, uh, mentioned like you know Desmond Decker's 007, and so on. Uh, are you thinking that maybe that wouldn't have happened had Roger Moore been in Doctor No? I mean, is this a is that a product of Sean Connery? You think? I I, I think it's all about Sean Connery myself. I just I just think that I mean he he took that uh, that vehicle and took it to another level, and it was kind of his charm and charisma and cool. And he just, you just, you just believed he was that great of a ladies' man and that and that bad of a dude, and and he could he could survive and and win against all those odds. I mean, you know, there's only a few actors that kind of can pull that off. I mean, Daniel Craig pulls it off really well too. Um, and and you know, and all the James Bond. I mean, you know, Pierce Brosnan. They've all got their elements that are great about them. Uh, the Roger Moore one just never quite worked for me because. And I don't I mean all you know. Due respect to Roger Moore, I know he's gone now, but he always just came off soft to me. Yeah, and 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 I don't mean that in that bad macho, stupid kind of way. But he just he just when in comparison comparing him to Sean Connery, uh, you know Sean Connery just appeared like a, a really tough dude, uh, and and not and not a bragging kind of tough dude. I mean that's. Burt Reynolds would kind of would have been more like the bragging tough guy, and where Sean Connery didn't have to brag, just was. I mean, all of that, all of that really, I think, just raised you know the Bond films to another level. I think maybe that's probably the reason that this franchise lasted as long as it has is because they went in this totally different direction with Roger Moore, and at a certain point, audiences had to say, "Okay, we've seen enough of that." 
funny version, the satire, yeah. the camp, we got to get back to something else. And I think they they definitely had to reimagine how they were going to create James Bond. And I suppose that's where we get we got Timothy Dalton, who was playing it real straight, but the movies weren't very good. And then his, yeah, his I thought Timothy Dalton was really good, too. I mean, yeah, he was good. He had a little bit of that Sean Connery thing going. Yeah, there's times when he feels like he's in a completely different movie than the movie that he's in. I mean, he's he's really serious, and and the world around him doesn't seem to be nearly as serious. <laughs> the, the world's kind of goofy. <laughs> goofy and, and overlit and kind of funny. Yeah. Yes. The Living Daylights is the near miss, where you'd think if somebody would have different would have directed it or shot it, if it had, had a little bit different look, he might have even changed the whole picture and it created that world around him and matched his character for that film. Because I like that film. But at the same time, it looks like crap, you know, like especially now the last time I saw it was in 4K and 4K is supposed to make things look better, but it also makes bad things look worse. And it and it looked terrible to me. Still enjoy him. I like I agree. I still enjoy Timothy Dalton and I think it's a decent, decent story for a Bond film. But man, oof, cinematography is rough on that one. Yeah. And, you know, um, uh, Roger Moore was the saint on TV. And and that during that whole '60s spy, you know, phenomenon thing that was going on in, in the I guess really the, the the Western world, and and so that's why he's immediately kind of thought as as the next James Bond. Again, the guys in the neighborhood they all say, "Hey, man, you watch the Saint? Man, the Saint's really cool." Uh, but totally different vibe than than Sean Connery and James Bond. Totally different vibe. Yeah. And so Pierce Brosnan comes from Remington Steel, and it's a similar kind of thing. Like, yes, you know, yes, not that yes. different from each other. Yes, yes. Well, the other question I had about uh, maybe you guys can help me with this one too. What the hell's with the crab? After after the shooting occurs, we cut to Quarrel behind the sand dune, peeking up over, and this crab goes by. Could you guys help me out with that at all? Because I have no idea, is that uh, is that some sort of strange coincidence that it went through in the frame? Did they actually wrangle a crab and have it walk in front of them? There's no payoff to it? I don't know. I just had to ask. If somebody else understands that, please let me know. <laughs> I wish there was, I wish there was some symbolism here or something. But uh, you know, I think, you know, back then, again, I think there were so many things they did in movies back then, especially these kind of films that, I mean, because James Bond wasn't James Bond yet. I mean, they, they hadn't really totally the style of James Bond. And so they they kind of fell back into some some kind of typical movie stuff. And and I think the crab comes comes the crab shot kind of comes from that. Yeah, he's got, he's bugging his eyes and he's acting like he's afraid of the crab and it's like, "Wait a minute, this is Quarrel, the greatest fisherman on the entire yeah. island of Jamaica, and why would he be nervous or bothered by a crab walking by him, you know?" Right. Well, I surprised I, he didn't grab a rock and smash it, you know? It's like Yeah, exactly. Know. Or just grab it and throw it away or something, you know? Yeah. But they don't really commit to the idea that he's weird. I mean, to me it's a really strange moment because I mean, what you're used to seeing maybe from earlier years of cinema would be a much more bug-eyed reaction, a much stronger, I don't know, like minstrel type of thing going on there, which is right. that, I, I assume that's what you're uh, inferring here. I, yes. I don't think, they don't commit to that, thankfully. They don't commit to no. that, but that's where the confusion is. It doesn't have a payoff, like a comic payoff in any way. It just seems like a weird, awkward moment. Terrence Young says he cooked all of this stuff up on the day. The whole mm-hmm. chase, and so, you know, it feels like he's kind of, well, let's get a quick shot of him behind the dune and let's run a crab in front of him and that'll give us <laughs> something to cut to. Because when Bond and Honey start to run up the beach to run into the woods, they cut back to this shot of nothing. And then back to them, the rest of that shot, the long shot, and then they cut back and you see the boat appear. So right. it feels to me like it's the editor just trying to squeeze as much pace out as as he can. And this is probably yeah. one more shot where they were like, well, let's grab another shot here of Quarrel just so we have some coverage because they were moving very fast, I think. Right. And just I'm, I'm, to- sure that's, I'm sure that's probably what it was because, uh, like I said, I mean, the fact that, that they're running and gunning, uh, that's, I mean, when you get in the editing room, that's kind of what it ends up being. It's just trying to make it work. So, you know, the guys that 
roar up in the boat and these two guys, the one guy with the megaphone, then they swear those guys, I think they're the same guys that were waiting when Professor Dent shows up to go see, to go get the tarantula. I think, I think Dr. No has a limited number of henchmen in this movie. But (laughs) did you notice after he says, we'll be back with the dogs. And then he puts the megaphone down and says, let's go. His voice is exactly the same as when it was coming through the megaphone. <laughs> yes, it, it is. It's like the most 80 yard and, and kind of big tough guy voice. We'll be back with the dogs. And also, why? what is it that he sees that makes him know that they're there? I looked at that that POV shot, the, the binocular shot, four or five times, and I couldn't figure out why he said, yeah, they're, they're here for sure, is what he says, I think. No, I was just going to say, I think all of that is just this movie cliche stuff that they're just letting, letting it roll, you know? Yeah, for sure. So they decided to ADR these American voices on these guys. Is that because the Jamaican voices would just be too laid back? <laughs> yeah. Well, be. I, probably because they, the Jamaican voices probably aren't scary enough. Yeah. You know, you know they, I mean, the, the thing about, the thing about Dr. No and his whole lair is that, you know, it's, you know, this is the thing that James Bond, the franchise, figured out even in the first one that that it's a it's kind of a sophisticated thing, and and what's what's dangerous about it is that sophistication and that level of sophistication and level of infrastructure and you know I mean these these people you, you got to really feel like they've got the ability to to destroy the world or to take over or something. And so that's a European sounding voice. That's a European kind of thing or a Chinese thing, you know, because China is, it's red China at this time. And so, you know, you're kind of, and there, and there's their, their image is sophistication as well, kind of evil sophistication in movies. And so both, both of those things, I think kind of inform even the even the dumb ADR choice, but but they but I think they know they're they're hinting at something bigger and and scarier. Well, it's interesting. This all brings to mind this idea that the Jamaican voice or the uh, I don't know if the, you're saying the Jamaican character might not be uh, menacing enough or villainous enough. But boy, that sure changes by the by the '80s. Because as soon as you said that, I thought, well, I remember uh, Jamaican characters being very. Uh, portrayed as very villainous in a lot of movies, specifically Steven Seagal movies and so on. Yes, um, is, it, is, is the difference the the Rasta aesthetic? Is that where oh suddenly a dreadlock, yes. a dreadlocked Jamaican comes around and that's villainous? Doesn't he yes. look villainous? And, yeah, and, and, it, and it's villainous in a very different way than the Bond villainous villain. Sure, the, sure. You know, again, the Bond villainy is sophistication where the. Jamaican villains in those movies are just kind of, you know, violent, murderous kind of thug types, whereas, but they're not sophisticated and they, but they are, but they are very dangerous. Whereas the, the Bond, the Bond villains are always a sophisticated kind of evil. I mean, they have henchmen that are violent and and thugs, but the person behind it all is always, you know, like a mad scientist almost. And And that that's the thing that's kind of made made the Bond movies kind of work because you know you know all the best Bond movies are all about the villain. I mean, it's all. I mean, John Goldfinger is a great one because he's such a great villain. He's such a sophisticated great villain. And the ones that kind of weak are weak are the ones that don't have a great villain. Yeah, and I guess that also falls into line with the whole idea that the producers bring to this, which is that whereas Ian Fleming was very nationalistic and very conscious of the national origins of his villains, the Bond films try to turn them into this kind of generic international. So Spectre replaces Smirsch, for example. Yes. And yes. Goldfinger is no longer an ex-Nazi. Uh, he's just this this eccentric businessman, you know, and so even though they have Gert Frobe, a German, playing him, uh, you know, they'd never really lean into the German thing. And so I think that that's you're that you're you're right right on that, Kevin, that they're moving us towards this fantasy of an evil international sophistication that doesn't know any real national identification, you know? Yeah. And Spectre and Smirsch and all those things are are these international um, terror organizations where they kind of get the best of any nation that's willing to be a terrorist and, and, and they combine them all. I mean, those, those, that, those early scenes in, in Russia with love where they're, 
you know, where they're walking through their training camp stuff. stuff. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and that stuff's great because, and, and, you know, but you have to say when they show, remember when, when, when uh, Al Qaeda was at its peak and they would show the, that footage of their training yeah. camp be doing the monkey bars and stuff and all that stuff. And it was like, that's straight out of straight out of to Russia with love. I mean, it's, yeah. it's all, it's all the same thing. You know, John, the other thing uh, that occurred to me just now thinking back to just for a second to the, to the crab moment uh, is, is Johnny quest and the um, yeah. amount of the natural world that informs Johnny quest. Kevin, do you remember Johnny quest as a kid? Oh man. It, and Johnny quest clearly came out of I mean That's all James Bond stuff. That's right. all. That's all cool. James Bond gadgets. Race is clearly, you know, he's a, a Bondish character, you know, because they knew kids were really into that stuff. I mean, I had a, I had an, a, a man from Uncle camera gun. You know, I had that too. Yeah, that, remember that camera <laughs> gun. Yeah, the <laughs> camera know? gun. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and and all of that stuff was just pure sixties cool stuff and they knew kids were into it so johnny quest just grows out of out of kids you know enthusiasm about i think ultimately about james bond yeah and i yeah. certainly thought about johnny quest when um when they used the reed snorkels at the end of these seven minutes too that was a, <laughs> a, the first thing i thought was like, oh that's got to be it i'm not even 100 sure i'm right but that's got to be at a johnny quest somewhere oh, it's it definitely in gilligan's island i know it's in <laughs> gilligan's island those, those were the two things i thought about immediately when i saw those but uh, yeah, Johnny Quest. Wow, yeah. There's, I almost, I think about him every time we do one of these shows. I think we've mentioned it now f- about four times now. <laughs> Johnny Quest certainly as comes from James Bond. Yeah, and you remember, I mean, the the villains in Johnny Quest are international villains, which is great when you think about it. it's a kid's cartoon on Saturday morning, and and the villains are international villains. They definitely are, yeah. You know, and and Haji, I mean, Haji is, you know, he's, I mean, he's Indian. And, I mean, it's that sophistication thing that uh, I think people just kind of grew to kind of just understand and and appreciate and and kind of expect really from, from the whole genre. So, John, do you have any other specific minute points? Because I have one other kind of general thing I want to ask. Well, I mean, this will probably be part of the general thing. I don't know if it will be, but we—I don't think we should get through these seven minutes without at least mentioning the um, the horrible double uh, combination of yanking a woman up by the arm and then telling someone to fetch his shoes. I think we got to bring that part. Definitely, the roughest part of these seven minutes is that uh, that those two things uh, bond. Uh, Forcing the issue with her as far as getting the boat by yanking her arm, which is obviously out of bounds uh, with a woman, and then telling his uh, his uh, sidekick there to fetch his shoes. I mean, how do we? I don't know what to say about it. I think we just have to at least bring it up. If you, well, you know, when you, anytime you see these movies from the fifties and sixties, obviously earlier, but but especially from the fifties and sixties, especially you know, James Bond is an incredibly sexist uh, character, and yeah. There's just no getting around it. I mean, he, it's a total male fantasy thing. I mean, it's, this is not about women at all. And this is, this is kind of before women's lived too. So, I mean, women are kind of as a whole, you know, most women are seeing themselves like Ursula Andress in the film. And, and so these, those kind of choices are, are not considered anything negative at the time. I mean, yeah, you know, I you, you look at movies from that era, and women are getting slapped by men constantly, 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 and and this and and these are the, the hero of the movie is slapping them and pushing them around, and and there's never a question at the time whether this was proper behavior or not, or, or the, the issue of domestic violence. I mean, that wasn't even a concept in, in these films. I mean, like like you know. I mean, if if you had a reason to beat your woman up, that was that was a given. That's that's perfectly fine. And so when you walk, when you show these movies in class, I mean, you, you kind of you, you know you always see scenes that just you know the, the women, the young women in the class just get to explode about because they're they're horribly sexist scenes and and domestic violence scenes really, and just just the treatment of women as a whole. I mean it. It just you no. Know, we we have come a long way in that sense, and but but unfortunately, still kind of got a long way to go. 
But that brings me right into what I was actually going to ask you about, Kevin, which is this question of when we look at these films and whether it's sexism or racism and there are movies that like I got no time for Jezebel. I cannot even think of any reason to show Jezebel <laughs> to my class. Right. Yeah. Um, I could I could probably if I worked real hard, maybe justify Gone with the Wind over Jezebel. But I don't like Gone with the Wind either. But. <laughs> Be that as it may, how yes. do we how do we in terms of educators, how do we position these movies where we kind of feel like, well, there is kind of a canon. There are there are films that we probably should look at. And, right. you know, the students are very uh, I mean, students are really s- sensitive to this stuff. I remember you telling me you had a little trouble with showing HUD. And, yeah, uh, I had a student that was really, you know, was triggered by HUD, which. Which I mean, shocked me because uh, you know I, I you know this is a movie from the early '60s when you couldn't show anything and there's a kind of an, an attempted rape scene and and she was kind of triggered by it and uh, I guess it says a lot to uh, the ability of the filmmakers at that time to, to to do something disturbing enough to trigger someone in in 2018 but yeah I mean it you know I think that. It, it, these old movies are great opportunities for education. I just think that I, I would never censor anything. I mean, if I was if I was Turner and I'm showing Gone with the Wind, Gone with the Wind has to have a, a warning label. I mean, you have to you you don't censor anything in it, but you do you do have to do a you have to set it up and you have to let people know kind of the point of view and what the point of view of the film is. Same thing with Birds of a Nation. I mean, you I think you know. Those movies tell us all we need to know about um, American history in terms of race, and, and they're great documents in terms of the, the, the how we ended up with the racial problems we have in our in the in the country today. But, but don't ever censor them. But but you do have to know how to talk about these films. So if you're going to show these films, you have to know how to teach them, because uh, a lot of times I remember as a kid, uh, I had a teacher that tried to teach. Um, uh, Huckleberry Finn and and was too racist for herself to teach it correctly. So you have to know how to teach it for one thing, and then and then on top of it, you you've got to really set it up and and use it as a, a, a film that reveals the 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 flaws of of American society. Are you concerned at all about not being able to be in the room when they're watching these movies? Because we're going to have to teach online now for the at least the the next semester or two semesters and it always feels special to be in the room for better or for worse when something happens and everybody reacts to it no doubt about it i mean that's that's the what i kind of live for in those classes i mean i i love when they're offended by something and i love when you know you set things up and then when they get to see it and they spot it themselves i love that part of it and that's that you're exactly right mitch i mean that's the that's the thing that you you miss in the online classes that that with watching films because you know you don't know really how they're watching the film how close they're paying attention you know students have a hard time paying attention to older films uh, period even when you're in class with them all of that I think is a is a real problem and and, and really one of the things that's a, a you know a shortcoming to the online um, experience I know that. Your film, The 24th, was going to have a premiere at South by Southwest and COVID stopped that from happening. It must be frustrating for you to like not get to see your movie with an audience. You must have been looking forward to that. Oh, a big time, man. And, and, and you know, our movie, The 24th, is about the Houston ride of 1917. And, and it was going to be on a South by Southwest. And so we we're going to be showing this movie in Texas. And um, and, you know, it's just, you know, we were right there where in the world of where some of this stuff happened and um and yeah it's it's definitely disappointing i, I mean you know this this whole period is going to you know it's a very strange weird thing we're going through and and in terms of film unfortunately i think it's going to change film in certain ways i'm not sure yet i hope theaters can survive this whole this whole um pandemic but uh, I, I fear that some of we're going to lose some things that, that people like us really love. Or at least it's going to take us a while to get back. It's always easier to break something than to build it, you know? 
No, no doubt about it. And, and the theatrical experience has been an experience that's kind of been under fire for the last 20 years, really. And especially smaller, you know, what I would say more important films. And, uh, you know, it's, it's harder to find those films in theaters and, and it's harder for those films to get attention. And, uh, and so this, this whole thing has not, not that cause at all. Well, on that dour note, <laughs> um, well, well, we will aim everybody to a, to video on demand to watch the twenty fourth. Uh, hopefully, that everybody can can see it that way. And uh, Five Bloods is still on Netflix, I believe. And yeah. I saw that Jayhawkers is on Prime, I think, or something. It's right on now. Amazon Prime now, yes. Yeah, so you can check that out there. Thanks a million. We really appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, this has been really fun, and and thank you guys for inviting me. And uh, um, it's always it's always good to talk about film. So, yeah. John, that's the end for this week at 007 by Seven. You can find us over on Patreon.com forward slash Alien Minute to check out our extra episodes. We should be having two of those a month coming out. Two dollars a piece for those, so uh, a real bargain. And you can find us on uh, Twitter at. 007 by 7 podcast. All right, we'll see you next week, folks.